I really don't remember Ty Allen Jackson before he was a really well-known children's author and very well-known person in our community. I, I, if I knew you before, I just I don't remember the old you. But um, tell me about how that all happened. I mean, you know, what were you doing before? Okay. I'm not sure I remember the old me, <laughs> if, I'm, if I'm being really clear and transparent. Um, before I had this epiphany of becoming a children's book author, I was um, a sales representative for Allied Waste. Mm. Uh, so more so not the, not the division that does the household pickup, but the, um, the commercial side. So my job basically was to find an institution, find a business, uh, whether it was a small mom and pop pizza shop or a large, you know, um, uh, corporate office and get them to use our trash removal service. So you were doing sales for sales. Oh, no so kidding I was doing me. sales. I was a sales rep. Holy yeah, cow. I did that for about four years. Um, Pittsfield wasn't so much my territory. Actually, my, the majority of my territory was um, Bennington, hmm. uh, Adams, North Adams. You know, I always thought that was really interesting, uh, especially Adams and North Adams, which is an incredibly diverse, you know, and then here comes this guy, you know, kind of slick talking New Yorker coming, <laughs> knocking on doors, trying to trying to sway people into taking our service. But uh, but I, I did relatively well. You know, I, I know how to talk to people and make people feel comfortable and build trust. And certainly I had pride and value in, in, in the service that we provided. But yeah, before I was a children's book author, I was a sales representative for Allied Ways. That's amazing because when people think of sales, so you said that the sort of like slick thing, but you laughed and you're kind of smiling because sure. you and I know when you're really good at sales, yeah. it's just all about connecting with people. And, and so, and, yeah. and you can't, and it can't be bullshit. You know, you right. have to, you, you have to actually provide something real. So, um, so wink, wink, you're, you know, the slick, but you know, you and I know that it's, it's, you, you got to connect. Well, the thing for me is that I was slick dressing. Remember I'm a kid from the Bronx. So like, you know, I wasn't coming in wearing like, you know, uh, Timberlands and and Levi's, you know, I was, you know, I was a, I was a kid from the Bronx. I looked like a slick kid from the Bronx and, you know, <laughs> getting my dirt, my, 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 my $200 shoes mucked up from the dirt to have to, and gravel that I'd have to walk in just to get to the front door. So, so the, you know, the exterior probably looked a little out of place. I love that idea of you're selling trash yeah. to some extent and but you're dressed yeah, to the nines you know, it's, well, it's still a corporate company so you know and, and and you know i wasn't i don't know if i quite felt the i still had that new york feel i still had that new york smell you know so i i wasn't full berkshire county so i i didn't dress like berkshire county i didn't look like berkshire county um so it and so a lot of people were probably a little standoffish at first but once they got to know me and just you know you know, I, the one thing I can do is engage and talk with people and just make them feel comfortable. Is, and uh, and I did really, it, I I really did um, believe in our in our service and products. I knew we were the best in town, so it was it was it was easy. Is that what brought you to the Berkshires? No, no, it wasn't business. My now ex was we met originally in New York City, but she was born and she was raised here. Oh, okay. And so okay. you know, once we had kids and was trying to look for a home in New York where we lived, it was just too expensive. And she suggested, well, what about Pittsfield? You know, where I was raised, it seems like a nice place to live. It's only two and a half hours away from the Bronx. It's it's affordable, the great schools, cost of living, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I said, sure. And she did the job at the Chamber she, of Commerce right there. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> That's funny. That's great. She sure did. So uh, so that brought you to the Berkshires, but you are from the Bronx. Born and raised. Um, tell me about your childhood. 
Um, tell me about your family. Yeah. So, um, boy, so I was born in 1967, which sounds so old. <laughs> sounds like, like totally ancient, like, like Fred Flintstone ancient. Um, I was born and raised in the projects. My, my mom was only 15 years old when she had me. She was so naive. She didn't even know how she got pregnant. And a year later, she got pregnant again. And then she figured it out, you know? So <laughs> it was like, if I do this, oh, that's what happened. <laughs> so um, my father was incarcerated for the majority of my childhood. And we were on, you know, from living at my grandparents. And then once we left them, we were on welfare for a while. So, so kind of on paper, I probably didn't have like, you know, the, the prototypical American dream type of childhood. But with that being said, I wouldn't trade my childhood for anything in the world. We had such a great sense of community in the Bronx where I lived. And, you know, parents all looked out for one another. You had like, you had like 150 different moms because every mom was kind of your mom in some way. They always kind of looked out for you. Mm. And it was a very tight knit community. There wasn't a lot of crime, wasn't a lot of drugs. It didn't have the stereotypical type of Bronx persona that you might think that it had. Um, it was a very loving, fun engaging community where nobody made a lot of money, but I, I don't, I, I never thought I was poor just cause I never seemed to have, you know, we always had food, you know, the lights were always on and had a TV, like everything seemed relatively normal. Um, I think the, the moment that I, I, I started to question things was when I was watching um, the parallel between good times and the Brady bunch. Ah, it's like, like, yeah. like, like, so, and I, and I saw our, us as the Evans family, like, you know, we lived in the projects, you know, like struggled to make ends meet and, and the, 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 the Evans family from the projects in Chicago looked a lot like the, the, the environment from me living in the, in the environment I lived in, in the Bronx. And then I saw the Brady bunch and it was a completely different, you know, set up an environment where, you know, that this huge house, they had a pool, there were cars involved, they had a maid and like, you know, he was an architect and like, what the heck is an architect? Like, you know, like, you know, so the, 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 and then what was interesting was that my, my, my school had, um, you know, that was predominantly black and Latino. Um, but all of the educators were white. There were about maybe 50, 60 educators, not, there was no people of color to be found. Wow. And so, um, and this was like, you know, in, next to the, in the projects in the hood, but I would always hear the teachers talk about this Brady Bunch type of life. Like, oh, we're going to the Hamptons and oh, I was on the pool, you know, and my, we drove up to this place and that place. And like, it just seems so foreign to me. Like it's, a, it was a Brady Bunch type wow. of life that these people were living while I was living this James Evans, you know, uh, good times type of life, but it was all right here. It's right here in front of me. And it made me always think like, why is it? Why are all these white people seem to have this Brady Bunch type of life? And, and on everyone that I knew of color seemed to have this good times type of life. And I, and I, I had no idea why this existed, but I knew that it was there. It was so stark. It was right in front of me. Hmm. And I, and I, and then, and it wasn't until, till in my twenties, my late twenties that I heard of this thing called redlining. And, um, and then, and it, it was so jarring to me that, that the reason why that the parallels between the life that I lived and the other life that these other people appear to live was systematic. It, it, it wasn't happenstance. It wasn't just because but it was like a systems put in place so that these people lived here and had this type of life. And these people had, you know, an, another type of life, which seemed, you know, very Hollywood-esque and picturesque and, you know, full of, of beach frolicking and car trips and vacations to Disney World. Like nobody, nobody from the hood went to Disney World. And you, you didn't have a TV to even watch the Disney Channel. Well, there was no Disney Channel, but 
Um, so anyway, with that being said, there, there was always this parallel that always made me think of why white people in this who didn't live there, by the way, like they didn't live there. They That's lived, what I was going to say. They lived yeah, in New Jersey, you know, they lived in Connecticut. Right. They lived you in, had all those teachers who are overwhelmingly or all white. All white. Uh, presumably they weren't living in no. the Bronx no, no, not community. At all. Yeah. And they all had cars and their cars took them somewhere. Like, like I said, they, they'd have a pool. I'm like, oh, we, had a, we had a community pool, but nobody had a pool in their house. Nobody had a house. Like, you know, we lived in, we all lived in, uh, in, a, in apartment buildings, but but outside of that, again, I wouldn't trade my childhood for nothing. For one other main reason, outside of my mother's love, um, I got the privilege of watching the conception, birth, growth, development of hip hop. I watched hip hop be born right in front of me hmm. by kids my age who just to, who created their own genre, who created their own platform, to be able to express themselves in a way that they had it's unprecedented you know up to that point teens black people in general they, they they were invisible they were they were powerless they were voiceless and even if they tried to express about their plights or or you know or um just negative things that were happening in their community nobody listened and then they created a, a form that you had to listen not only were you listening you were you were imitating, you were mimicking, you were you know, and it was so to, to go from this little place in the Bronx, then Brooklyn and Queens and New York, saturated, and just in the, then the whole country, and then the entire world was you know. A year or two later, there was hip hop groups in Japan and 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 in Europe, and like it was so to see that be born right in front of me was so instrumental to me finding my voice and the mm. courage to be able to like, well, you know, if these kids can do it, you know, I was in a hip hop group, which is why I write children's books now because I was so bad, I was so horrible but at the time but there's an inspiration because i think there's a lot of people maybe in you know white america who probably picked up a guitar after the 1960s because sure. they heard bob dylan you Absolutely. know and and that and sort joan of thing baez so joan and baez like, yeah. and, and and they knew that those artists were going beyond just singing these folk songs right. that were historic they were actually saying something they were unique. saying something powerful they're saying something powerful that was relevant to this generation back then right and so hip-hop was it was its own entity and its own you know sort of evolution of music and it was it clearly um world changing yeah and and so when you because when you think of folk music or you know the joan Baez and the bob dylan's of the time there really was just there was the music and the movement and then but with hip-hop it was there was these these other entities to it. It wasn't just rap music. It was the way you dressed. It was graffiti. It was, it was, a, it was literally a culture. And so like you just to see the dynamic of, of, of this culture in so well-developed within our community and then branch out into other places. Like it was, it was really very powerful. It was a powerful, powerful time for me, especially as just a young impressionable kid, just to see something happened right in front of me that didn't exist before. And then it not only becomes so powerful, but it actually just kind of take over the country. And it was, it was really so, beautiful and powerful. So to I, watch. I wonder like to put yourself in that time and you think of like, okay, what, what is the sort of currency? In other words, you're in this environment and people are saying things and they're being creative. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder, like you know what what was that like like who like 
what were people doing and what what is that like, you know, for lack of a better term, like currency, like who who are the guys who are like, oh, wow, we're looking up to this person or we're looking up to that person or that woman, um, you know, like what, what was that like? Who are the people? Who are the characters? Well, you know, I, there was some unknown names like uh, Cool Herc who, uh, and um, and uh, Grandmaster Kaz. Was, but then, you know, they're more popular people like Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, Run DMC, the Cold Crush Brothers. Um, you know, like it started to become much more mainstream. Curtis Blow, uh, Big Daddy Kane. You know, it was um, as as these underground people started to become more mainstream, and then then people just come out of the gate mainstream. It was really empowering. It it just made people realize that you know we can build our own brands, build our own creativity. Um, pre Instagram, yeah, certainly we're pre pre yeah severely pre internet pre internet pre pre internet um, and and that's interesting. Like, how do you build a brand? You know, like at that time, you know, we we kind of now have learned the established way of quote unquote building a brand today. Yeah. But back then it was, it was a lot different and a movement grew in a much different way. Yeah. Predominantly radio. And then eventually television caught on with the MTVs of the world. It was a show called radio music box. That was kind of a, the, the urban MTV that, mm. you know, played uh, lots of underground hip hop and, uh, culture and rap and stuff like that and that was my goodness it was so big i know ralph mcdaniels was kind of the uh the the i don't know the catalyst for 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 that kind of the don cornelius if you want to call it that of of hip-hop and um and so you know people would come in there with their big gold chains and their cool hats and big name belts and you know the, like a run dmc with the big fat laces and their adidas and no laces at all and and started this trend and this movement that like it was it was easy it was easy to mimic um and um yeah, and it just built this level of creativity and spun off into other things, like I said, graffiti, breakdancing, which, you know, to see breakdancing start right there in the Bronx. And then, like, just next thing you know, people in California were doing it and put, put their own spin on it and style on it. It just, like, looked so much different than what we were doing, but it was still the same allegiance. And it was just, it was, it was really fun and beautiful to watch. I look at the 1977 and 78 New York Yankees. Okay, yep. And the cross, and those were two teams that they won the World Series. Yep. And yeah, and 78 was the year I was born. So I'll never forget. I'm a Yankee fan. Uh, so it's just kind of like in my head, I'm like, okay, those were the years they won the World Series. But I can't imagine how wild, interesting, and um, amazing, <laughs> maybe a little scary too, it was in New York City and at the Bronx during that time. Um, you know, I think there was even like a, a a serial killer out of the loose at yeah. the time, you maybe know, a blackout or two, uh, you know, blackout or two. I mean, yeah. it, it, uh, I mean, do, do you remember those days? I was probably about 10, about 10. About 10. Yeah. So like, um, so I remember the, the, the sensationalness of, uh, son of Sam killer right, and, right. That's uh, what it was. Yeah. yeah, the son of Sam and, um, yeah. And then the Yankees were so prominent. It was such a big deal. I mean, they were just such rock stars and I think I can name every single player from the 77 Yankees and, um, and then compound that with hip hop. Try, and, try, try. No, oh, I can, I can 100% do it. Thurman Munson, um, Chris Chambliss, w Willie Randolph, Bucky Dent, Greg Nettles, uh, Reggie Jackson, uh, Mickey Rivers and Lou Pinella, right? Lou Pinella. <laughs> There you go. <laughs> I got one. Yeah. I got one. Yeah. Oh man, what a team! Yeah, well, what a like team. Ron Gidry was on the team. And Ron Gidry, right? yeah, Louisiana yeah. Lightning, absolutely. Goose Gossage. What a, 
What a wild, what a wild Oh my gosh, it was so good. And Billy Martin, who was just larger than life, he was such a clown. Oh, it was such a, such a great era for baseball. And then, you know, add in the crime, which was so prominent and blackouts and, and, and uh, then hip hop music and just so many elements. I mean, it was, New York was just a hotbed of just excitement and energy. And, you know, some of it was good, some of it was bad, but it was, but you couldn't deny it was real power. It was real. It was, it was, it was real. It was was where New York kind of reputation got built in the, in the seventies, just like how crazy it was. And then, you know, and then then the eighties came and, you know, just gave us a great sense of, of, of expression with, with movies and television and the star Wars and John Hughes movies and stuff like that started coming out. And, Duran Duran and just it kind of changed the <laughs> changed the whole dynamic of, of you know fluorescent colors were in style and stuff like that. It was such a such a beautiful time. And when you could define eras like the 70s and 80s and 90s and just having them in such you know weird, eclectic, but progressive and fun dynamics, it was just it was a great time to, to be alive. Hmm. And then there was even Muhammad Ali, sure, who was yeah. uh, you know, I know uh, was uh, someone who inspired you and, Tremendously. Uh, and you were a huge a fan of um you know another another piece of that i don't know did he he fought in new york at some point oh right? in madison uh, square garden madison yeah, square garden, yeah right? for sure yeah 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 so for um, sure those were pretty so you know tell me about him a little bit and uh what he meant to you in, in you know expression yeah I, I feel like he's an athlete who crossed over to artistry uh for sure yeah um i i really discovered him more as an athlete when my grandfather would watch him you know this is when the fights were just on regular tv like howard cosell was you know on abc was inter you know doing the play-by-play or whatever you know doing the i don't know if they call it by play-by-play in boxing but um and howard cosell himself was larger than life and then you had muhammad ali and the voice of of cosell in the background was so so dynamic i didn't really understand the power of him as an as an advocate and a a leader i really more just saw him as a fighter I, i kind of as a child missed the whole component of him you know missing time off because not entering the draft. And I, I, I didn't, I didn't get the politics of Ali. I just really admired. And plus he was a, such a star. I think he had a cartoon, he had a doll, like, you know, so I, I, I really just got caught up in the, in the, in the vibrancy and the youth and the good stuff about him. I didn't really see until much, much later, probably even in the, my late teens or early twenties um, about the power of him being such an advocate for, for justice and humanity. And so, so I, I didn't, I, I didn't, I didn't get, the grasp of how powerful he was as a leader as a kid. It wasn't until later, but what did do it for me actually is just reading. I was a ferocious reader at a really young age. My mother introduced me. Uh, comic books was kind of my gateway into into to the world of reading at seven, eight, nine. But at nine, nine years old, I got a hold, I remember, of Native Son by Richard Wright, which is just such a powerful book. And was the first time that I read about a, a Black person, a, a Black kid, he was a teenager um, in a book before. Prior to that, like it was just Superman and Batman. And like, you know, you see all these larger than life, you know, fictional characters. And then, and then this, his name was Bigger Thomas. And he was, I'll never forget it. And, um, and then I read Ralph Ellison, Invisible Man. Do you remember, you remember, how, biography of you, you, remember how you found that book? It was just in the house. My mother just had books in the house all the time. Mm. Um, and they were just, they were everywhere. They were in the bathroom. They were in the kitchen. Books were just everywhere. Despite wow. my mother having me real young, she was just like really such a, 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 
a ferocious reader and there were just books everywhere. And, you know, I would see her read something, she'd put it down, I'd pick it up. And at 10 years old, I'm reading like, you know, and then I got in the classics, like, you know, Catcher in the Rye and Cold Blood and wow. uh, of Mice and Men. I was like, I was reading, like they were just in the house. And so I would read all of these classics, 10, 11, 12 years old, just casually, just like, you know, while kids were playing basketball, I was up in my room, you know, reading, um, reading Truman Capote, like it's ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, there's a lesson there somewhere. Parents, you know, yeah. just, it, it, it's okay to leave the books around. Uh, yeah, 100%. Because, you know, I mean, I think we're we're always told, oh, clean up the house, clean up after yourself and everything. But leave a, leave a book around. Leave the books. Yeah. Leave, leave them there. Okay, leave kids them will there. gravitate to what's ever around. That's amazing. Yeah. That really is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was I was certainly reading things I should not have been reading. And old thing, same thing applies for movies. Like I was always into the power story. Like it really mattered to me. One of the things that really stood out is um, Clockwork Orange. I remember seeing mm. that at a really young age. <laughs> and that is definitely not a movie that you want to watch when you're 12 years old. I mean, that's <laughs> like, you know, that could that could scar you for life. Fortunately, oh, it didn't. But it was, you know. it was so powerful just to see the. The, the contrast in stories and, and how things got so dark. And I don't know. And then, you know, compound that with the Bronx and growing up in this crew environment of single mom, there's a, there a lot going on for this kid. And which is why I think I wouldn't, I, I, I couldn't trade, I wouldn't trade my childhood for the, the, the richest family in Beverly Hills. I don't think I could have had a better childhood. It was just so eclectic in the best way. And, uh, and in the center of all that I was my mother's love. I do hope that you are enjoying the podcast. I just want to take a quick moment to let you know that this is a production of 180 Media. That's my full service communications and marketing agency. We do a full range of content development, graphic design, web development for WordPress or Wix or other web platforms, copywriting, video work. Check out 180media.com and see also some of my past work and the agency's past work on my blog, johncroll.info. And now back to the podcast. Somewhere in there, you began to think about and then ultimately began writing. So when did that begin for you uh, in, in your life, the, the, the writing? Yeah, I mean, you could skip a couple of decades because it wasn't until really? I was 40. 40 is when I got the idea to, to write a children's book. So wow. I, I, I had one of my, this, first of all, this interview is very interesting because it's diving me deeper than I'm usually accustomed to going. But uh, <laughs> so kudos to you. But um, I'd never been to college. So that's the, very often surprising to people. Mm -hmm. And um, I went from high school straight into just, I worked for 15 years as a stock boy from like 20 to 35. And then I sold cars for a little while and then moved here. And um, about, about 35, 36 years old, I coached Little League for a couple of years. I worked for, um, what did I work for initially? I think I, I worked for Centos for a little while. And then I worked for Link to Life. I don't know if sure. you, yeah, I worked yeah, for, for Spice, right? Yep. Yeah. And um, and then I worked um, at Centos and I worked for Allied Waste. And while I worked for Allied Waste, you know, I was about 40 years old. And, and that's when my son asked me the question that would change my life. And he said, Dad, can we open up 40? It was a hot summer day. And it was interesting because it was about two weeks before my 40th birthday. And I saw my very first gray hair. And it was a turning point for me because I was working at Allied Waste and it was a good job, but it wasn't my purpose. Sure. And when I saw that gray hair, it really made me realize like, like this, 
this adult thing is for real. Like, and this, like, I can't stop this clock and I'm, I'm not doing the thing I want to do. And I don't even know what that thing is. I don't know what my purpose is. I don't know why I'm here. I'm not here to sell trash dumpsters. You know, that's not my purpose, I, but I don't know. I don't even know what I'm here for. And when I saw that gray hair, it was like the universe going, yeah, the clock is ticking. You better figure this thing out. And so I was terrified when I saw that gray hair. Obviously, I got a lot more of them now. <laughs> but it was about two weeks after my 40th birthday that my son said, he was eight years old. He said, dad, can we open up a lemonade stand? And so we went to the corner of Dexter and Elm and um, opened up a lemonade stand and he made $50 in three hours selling lemonade. Wow. I was like, wow. <laughs> like that was my reaction. A chip thinking, off the old block. Well, right? now I mean, come on. You, know, so, <laughs> so, well, you, could sell, you could sell back then. Too. Yeah, that's true too. <laughs> uh, so he said, dad, what am I going to do with this 50 bucks? And I'm like, I don't know. Like, I just didn't want to, you know, I'm like, there's a, there's a, a great less life lesson here. Let's, let's yeah. figure out what that is. So I went to Barnes and Noble. To, to try to find a book to teach my son about money. And, you know, I, two, two things I noticed immediately is one, there were almost no books teaching kids about money, which is like crazy. Yeah, like, yeah. And the other thing was like, where are all the contemporary books featuring children of color, just in fun, contemporary ways, not underground railroads and Rosa Parks and Jackie Robinson and Muhammad Ali. Like, where's it's just, you know, the diary of a wimpy kid book with a, with a black yeah. Latino Asian kid on the cover. There really were almost none. So I thought to myself right there in that Barnes and Noble, I said, maybe I could find somebody to write a children's book. And what the heck do I know about, you know, writing children's books? And then I thought about the quote from Gandhi to be the change you wish to see in the world. And mm. so if the opportunity to, to, if so, if someone, if I wanted to see a book about financial literacy exists with a young black kid as the protagonist, I'm supposed to be the change, not seek the change. The name Danny Dollar right there just popped into my head. I went home, started typing. It took a year to write the story. I submitted it to 147 agents. I was rejected 147 times. No one would publish it for me. So I went to Google and I typed in, how do you self-publish a book? It took another year to learn how to write, uh, to publish a book. I, and uh, I started my own publishing company. I named the company Big Head Books. Um, after something that my, my son would always tease my daughter and say, you have a big head, you have a big head. And she goes, well, I've had better grades than you. So that means I have a big brain. <laughs> and so I just thought that okay, it was cool that she took the negative and turned it into a positive. And I just liked the name Big Head Books. It just sounded like it was cool and it fit. And then, and two years after my son said, hey, dad, can we open up 11-8 stand about 42, 43 years old, my, that Danny Dollar came out and the rest is history. It's amazing. And Danny Dollar, was it just because of the alliteration or was there something special? About no scientific reasoning behind it at all. I don't even know a Danny, like the name, just like it just <laughs> the, the name Danny dollar, like right in there. On the you didn't know one. Levels. So you created, I, yeah, it just popped in them. Danny dollar. It just like, that sounds cool. And I went in my home, my, went in my car. And I remember I pulled out a little pen and pay it pad and I kept in the car and I just wrote the name Danny dollar. And I went home, you know, and I just, I started typing. And, yeah. and I have no idea how to tell a story. So I go to the library and I would just, you know, take out as many books as I could about stories that I would feel like would be similar to that. And I just saw how those authors wrote and I just kind of stole their style and or stole their the concepts of how how they created a character and how they told a story. And like and I just mimicked it and I just put my own spin on it. And and um, yeah, and I just never realized how much I loved it. Like I, I, mm. I was always a good student, never a great student. But um, I, I would never have envisioned myself as a writer. I still actually would never call myself a writer. I call myself a storyteller. I think writing is an art form that I have not nowhere near mastered. Um, but um, but I realized well, how much I well, love telling. Well, humility stories. is something that you've picked up on because you know I, I think I think there are plenty of people who have you know who any anyone who had attained 
authorship and and done what you've done, you know, would be more than happy to call themselves a writer. Well, I, I don't <laughs> I don't think my skill is in the writing. I think yeah. my skill is in the marketing and the networking. Yeah. I think no one will ever accuse me as an award-winning writer. No one. And if they do, I would question their alcoholic beverage intake. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. What I can do is I think I can tell a decent story, a good story, a simple story for kids and really have them enjoy it uh, with really fun, engaging characters. But what I think I'm really good at is marketing, like like marketing and networking and 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 getting it. And I think that's part of where hip hop in the Bronx came from. That's, you know, the get out there and be boisterous and bold and confident and believe in yourself and and be proud of what you do and the way that you do it. You know, being growing up in the Bronx builds a sense of resiliency, of creativity, of of uh, authenticity that I think that you just can't get in most places, which is why, you know, you, you meet a kid from the Bronx, they're just a little different. They're just, they're just you, from New York in itself. They're just, they're just built a little differently. And, um, and I attribute uh, the success that I've had to, to growing up, you know, with that resilient sense of being aware of the good times and Brady Bunch kind of division and the hip hop in the Bronx and the blackouts and the crime and the drugs and the Yankees. Like, you know, all those things kind of build us an armor and a sense of resiliency and a self-awareness. You focused originally on this money aspect. Yeah. This, this idea that kids ought to, and by the way, this is something that is, and, and I think it's probably the case for um, young people of color. But I think it's, I, I would say with our school system, I think it's every child who is short on education about dealing with money, yep. uh, balancing a checkbook, uh, being able to understand how to grow money, how to save it. I, I mean, and you go into schools all the time. Um, and to me, I'm astonished that we don't have any kind of formal curriculum, I don't think anywhere in the country, in public schools that focus on this. Uh, I, I don't know why you're shocked because well, <laughs> <laughs> right I mean yeah well, well why I mean I guess why why is that why is the case Ty because we don't we are not a society that's built on information we're we're a society built on exploitation hmm. and so it's it's easier to be able to extract and exploit those that are not knowledgeable than it is and they are and I I don't I don't grasp that concept I really don't um, to me I, I went in a, a country be better served when 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 more people are you know affluent and well to do if if i make more if i make money i'm going to spend money like right, right. it's going to build a better economy as opposed to having levels of classism and people who are poor and the majority of people are poor and keeping them dumb about financial right. literacy i don't think you know and i i get the exploitation part of it you know and so it keeps the rich richer and the people in power more in power when the, yeah. the masses are uninformed and naive um, right. I, I understand. I, think, that. I can't remember which elitist, uh, which wealthy elitist said it, but uh, we want to create a nation of workers, not thinkers, yeah. is one of those quotes. Just right. one of those quotes right. about some of the thoughts that were placed into the building of this education system that, that we have today. But imagine if that was the opposite. Imagine mm. a, a, a country in which did promote financial literacy, that that provided free higher education to everyone that was available. I mean, you, you'd you have a much more prosperous community. And to me, more in that aspect, more is better. You know, and, and so, you know, a, a person who makes $25,000 a year, you know, is, 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 is is not going to be in a position to buy that car to buy that home like 
the, the, the way the economy is built. I mean, I'm so not an economist. Uh, you know, I, I could argue I'm not great at financial literacy. Yeah, but some of this is real common sense. And, I, common and, sense, and I know, yeah. and, and, you know, you talk to financial people and they talk about things like productivity and this and that, but then you miss the overall point of view, which is if everybody does well, um, it would be far better off, but I, there, but there sounds are, like common sense, but to there me. are people who are in power who do not want 100% power to the people, you okay. know, and, and more education out there. It, it, it really is true. I mean, this is nothing, we're not like, we're not talking conspiracy stuff. This is literally out there. The yeah. things that the people have said and people in power have said over decades. Of course. And you know, the, the way the school system is, you know, constructed, I mean, I, I have no idea who the 14th president is. I know at some point I was taught who the 14th president was at no point in my adult life. Did it come you know, necessary for me to know who right. the 14th president was? Uh, but, but did you have I to know want... the Pythagorean theorem? No. <laughs> did you ever have to? No, that was never <laughs> applicable to any part of my Anything. life, <laughs> but I, I know for sure I wasn't taught what a stock was. I know for sure I was yeah. never taught what debt is or interest or a CD or like, you know, I, I, I didn't understand the, the stock market and none of that was introduced to me. Um, Isn't that amazing? It is amazing. Oh, God. And so, you know, you so have to ask yourself a very simple question, like either the educational system is really dumb or strategic. Right. It's, 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 you know, it's, it's not an, it's either really just the, the hugest oversight, the educational in the educational system, or it's, it's, it's purposeful. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think seeing it's the, by it's the latter baby. it's the latter you can't I mean, it can't it can't be any other way because we uh spend so we obsess over the curriculum yep. you know we obsess over testing we obsess over you know what is in the curriculum and what is not and yet some of the oh jesus <laughs> let's, <see. laughs> yeah. let's go to the let's go to this the state school board of education well yeah, I, i'm like, proud to say that that in my own little way my little danny dollar book is doing something about it it is, um, it is. so not only is that book itself kind of the uh, a, a great read for young people to be introduced to the concept of money. It actually got the attention of an economics professor from Northern Kentucky University who found the book and had been looking for a way to engage the children of his community about finance and entrepreneurship. And together we co-founded Danny Dollar Academy. And um, initially the program started out with about 50 students in, in uh, Western Kentucky. And uh, today, this year alone, over 10,000 students will go through Danny Dollar Academy. And about five years ago, the Federal Reserve took over the program. So, and there, there, it's wait a minute, wait a minute. The Federal Reserve took it over. The Federal Reserve of Cleveland is. Oh, okay, okay. The Federal yeah. Reserve of Cleveland. Okay. Um, is, um, <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm it, like, you sold out, man. No, <laughs> <laughs> no I'm just kidding. Um, hey, listen, that you know, if anything, if that can get uh, further out to the world, no matter how it well, gets we are there. Work, we are working on it. We are, we are working on it. Yeah. Wow. That's quite a step. It is quite a step. It's, I'm, and, and it's, you know, it's funny when I conceived Danny Dollar, I literally said to myself, like, the principles of this needs to be a financial literacy program, because there, 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 there is no financial literacy in the, in the world of education, and it needs to be introduced in, in, in some way. And, and it's like the universe was listening. And, and when I got that call from the professor and you know, it's like, it was this, 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 um, it was just the evolution of something I knew that was going to be really special. And so far it's, it's turned out that way. And, um, I, I can only see it growing much more prominently because one thing that we've learned, I mean, if we've learned quite a few things from our, from our, from the pandemic, but you know, how, how, how financially inept we are as a country is certainly one of them. 
And so being able to instill children about the, just the basic principles of finance and entrepreneurship is something that needs to be as standard as social studies, math, science, and gym. And so, uh, so we're doing our little part and hopefully my, my goal is to have Danny dollar be the, you know, the, the, uh, McGruff crime dog or the Smokey, the bear iconic type of figure that you go into classrooms and see, you know, what's the debt, what's stock, what's interest by this character, Danny dollar and him be prominent in every classroom. And I feel like, you know, we're, we're, we're in that direction. What is your favorite part? I think I know the answer, but what is your favorite part about what you do as a part of being the author, the marketer, the educator, um, and going to these schools and speaking in front of thousands of, of kids and educators. Um, I mean, <laughs> that that's pretty intoxicating, uh, you know, but awesome, uh, as well. Uh, so, you know, what's your favorite part about it? <laughs> uh, when I, when I was in a Troy, this has happened to me many times, but it was in particularly about four years, four or five years ago in the Troy public school system. I just finished doing one of my presentations and, you know, in my presentations, it's really high energy. I'm using music and dance and, and just uh, entertainment in general to kind of inspire kids to just make the connection between reading and fun. And as, as we were kind of boogieing around the, the, the auditorium and having a good time, a, a young man just pulled me, uh, pulled my, my, my pants leg and said, you know, I just want to let you know, this little kid, maybe about nine, eight, nine years old, he just said, Mr. Jackson, I just want to let you know that I've always hated reading. I've never, ever liked reading until I read The Super Duper Kid. And now not only is that my favorite book, but now I love to read. And um, I, I, I can't put into words. Well, first of all, that's happened to me countless times, like, like hundreds and hundreds of times that kids have said that my books were the books that converted them into a reader. And that's that's my goal. I, I, I don't I don't know how other authors or people in general define success, but um, knowing that my work has inspired young people to become greater versions of themselves, I, I I can't think of any I can't th think of a better way to define success for me. And so I, I'm very fortunate that I've had so many kids say to me, you know, I became a reader because of you. That's there's nothing. There's no dollar amount um, that that then that can top that for me. Read or else. Yeah. Where did that come from? So our good friend, our mutual friend Eddie Taylor um, and I. Um, he's doing really well, by the way. He's doing really well. He's doing super well. Living in North Carolina. Um, he, he co-founded this program called the full program in which we were working at Berkshire County house of corrections, working with inmates to help them realize the importance of, or of, of reading and, uh, helping instill reading into their homes by having them read my picture book. When I close my eyes, package it up in a DVD and send that book in the DVD along with their children, uh, to their children so that they can pop the DVD in if everybody even owns a DVD player anymore. Uh, you millennials, what a DVD player is, is, um, amazing. yeah, uh, it, it really is amazing. Um, uh, we didn't always stream. It's a whole nother thing, but, um, but working in the jails kind of forced me to do some research about illiteracy and, 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 and how illiteracy is directly not indirectly, but directly connected to most of the things that ail our country from unemployment to, to, to poverty, to teen pregnancy, to mass incarceration, to drug use, to like you almost, you, you name it. The majority of the things that ail our country is directly connected to the illiteracy rates. 
And so in other words, read or else. And when I, I came up with that idea, I put it on a shirt and, uh, you know, and Eddie, I just started selling them and, you know, they started doing really well, but we wanted to, to be more than just a walking, talking billboard. So I used like the Tom's shoe model. Like, so with every purchase of a hoodie, we would send a book, we would find a, a homeless shelter or a title one school that uh, might be suffering from some of those ailments because of illiteracy. And we would send a book to, we, if we sold 20 garments, we would send 20 books. And uh, we've been doing that now for seven, eight years now. And, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a nice spinoff to, 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 to this advocacy and this work of promoting literacy. And I think it's a really powerful tagline. The people who see it, get it. And, um, and uh, yeah, it's just something I'm very proud of. And it's made some national news coverage, I think, or, or at least uh, pretty solid regional uh, coverage. I remember I seeing a pretty big news story that focused on reader else. This woman named Noel Santos went public on social media, maybe about seven years ago, stating that the only bookstore in the Bronx was about to close. It was a Barnes and Nobles in Co-op City in the Bronx, and it was about to close. Mm. And there were no other bookstores in the Bronx. And she said, this is absolutely ridiculous. And if you parallel the Bronx, it has about 1.5 million people. The capital region here, you know, Schenectady, Albany area has also about 1.5 million people. There are about 22 bookstores in the capital region, 22. Mm. Mm. In the Bronx with the same amount of people, one. And yeah. that one was about to close. And she wasn't going to allow that to happen. When it had no experience, she built a GoFundMe campaign. She wanted to raise $100,000 to be able to open up a bookstore. She raised over $250,000, um, including in part because she took our Reader Else garments and made it part of the promotion of opening up. So for anyone that donated $500 or more to be able to, they got a Reader Else hoodie. And some of the people that donated it are um, uh, Dan Brown, who wrote, Sure. Uh, so Dan Brown, uh, who wrote the Da Vinci Code and um, Angels and Demons, Angels right? and yeah. Demons, yeah. Uh, Michael Moore. Um, uh, so a couple of really prominent people had had purchased them, and so that you know got a little bit of press, which is obviously very very nice. And they're probably the only co- location right now. Uh, by the way, the Lit Bar, which is the store that she opened up, is the most beautiful bookstore you will ever see anywhere in the country. It is absolutely magnificent. And she was honored by not just being featured in Vogue and the New York Times. She was only one of a few people for National Bookstore Day. She actually, two years ago, interviewed Barack Obama. And um, so that was like like a really high point, obviously, for her. So she's, wow. she's become something of a rock star. So anyone listening, Noel Santos, the Lit Bar in, in the Bronx, she will be a household name in three years. I guarantee it. So next time I have you come on, we'll have to have Mark Rosinski join oh, yeah. because Mark swore he, he was absolutely sure without a doubt that the reason that Ty Jackson gets so much reach with his Instagram reels is because it's pay to play, baby. He, he's 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 got to be paying for it. It's all pay. It's all pay. It's all pay. <laughs> You you reached out to me and, and after you you listened you said no 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 and 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 so all you um, social media people who are who are trying to figure out how to listen up here here we go so um, so Ty is here he crushes it with Instagram Reels he does I mean you know he does a tremendous job um, just amazing amazing reach amazing engagement so let's talk about that how, sure. how did that all begin for you um, 
because you know you've been avid in social media. Mm-hmm. You have to be, um, you know, with your business. Yep. But uh, but I think it's taken up to a new level. One hundred percent with the reels. Yeah. So first of all, Mark, I have never ever paid <laughs> for uh, anything. I've I've never come out of pocket. Uh, everything is completely organic. So to you. Um, how dare you? Uh, <laughs> the round table is next. The round yeah. table is next. Yeah, yeah. Let's get him in here. So um, I've been, I mean, from almost the moment that social was from, from my space, you know, I, I was, you know, I, I, I was right on the bandwagon as soon as the social media uh, uh, culture took, took hold. And once Facebook came out, you know, certainly just initially used it as a, as a tool just to, you know, say hello and build community and network. But, but then once I became an entrepreneur and, and really saw the opportunity to be able to use it as a marketing and networking tool, it was essential for me to use as, um, as, as the powerful tool that it is to, to increase sales, build awareness, build a brand. And, um, and as social media grew in other divisions from, you know, uh, from LinkedIn to Twitter to Instagram now and TikTok and Snapchat, uh, you grow with it and you, you, you get to see that each and every one of them has like a very unique purpose, mm-hmm. you know, for Facebook is, is much more about community where Instagram is a lot more about building, uh, uh, alliances with like-minded institutions and, and organizations and, uh, Twitter is, is much more also of an, of an informative platform. And while TikTok is just all about fun. And so you <laughs> kind of just use them all in, in, in its, in its own way. Uh, Instagram is probably, it's not probably, it's by far my go-to. Uh, I feel like it allows me to showcase my work and my personality and character substantially. And, uh, and so I've always been really, really good at Instagram. Um, and, but it wasn't until the reels kind of came into play where I kind of found my calling. And when I saw how, how, how much, how powerful that particular platform Instagram was, I actually hired a social media consultant, uh, who honestly was just a young college kid who was just killing it herself. Yeah. You know, I, I paid her an hourly wage and, and she, she taught me how to do these reels. And I remember January 1st is when I did my first one because she, she taught me like in late December. And I did my first one. I had about 6,000 followers at that point. Almost immediately, I was getting, you know, hundreds and then thousands of followers a month. I'm not only at about 16,000 followers, so I've gained it just since January 1st, well over 10,000 followers. I got verified, which is a really big deal and has yeah. helped me substantially. Um, with uh, being really much more credible uh, on on social media, and for those who don't know what verified means, it's a, it's a blue check mark to verify that you are a person of prominence, what, whatever that means, in the form of uh, entertainment or or politics or whatever the case is, and it 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 allows a tremendous amount of credibility to what it is that you do. So uh, getting verified was huge for me, and uh, I'm you know averaging about a thousand followers, which sounds very superficial, but it's not because ever. Since since that increase of of followers, um, my Instagram, my Amazon sales have doubled yeah. um, from maybe one to two thousand sales a month, which on Amazon is really pretty big because they take fifty five percent of my so so my so my two thousand monthly Amazon sales is really like four thousand mm-hmm. in sales um, would be on my um, on my website. My pledge, my website sales have have doubled, and by far my my um, speaking engagements 
because and especially outside of this region have skyrocketed. Yeah. And so 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 superficially the numbers and stuff like that seems like it's cute, but it's all translated into substantially yeah. more dollars in it's revenue. Not, it, it's not superficial if it's converting. Right. And Absolutely. In, in sales, I don't care if you have uh you know 10 followers and if you get a hundred percent of them who convert uh and spend money or or yep. do something versus a million people and you know and maybe you get one percent of that but if 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 you're playing a numbers game yeah and part of that numbers game is volume yep and then you that's 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 part of the that's part of the game and and you know when you're succeeding at that by getting those higher numbers so when you when you hit a certain threshold of a critical mass then it can start converting over and so you know you've hit that so it's not superficial at all because it actually you can mathematically uh correlate sales 100 <laughs> and yeah. i'm having fun doing it yeah. I, I really oh, yeah. i i actually enjoy it and especially during covid where everybody's inside you have to find ways to entertain yourself and be fun and creative so it was really a great opportunity for me to just be silly and goofy and do some weird things and and have those things showcase my personality and what i is that i do continue to build and grow my my, my following and fan base which have all translated into revenue and the opportunity to get out and do what i do yeah. And, uh, and some of it is just kind of like, there are like new sounds that, that come out on reels. I mean, so reels is basically a, a knockoff of TikTok. but I will say, and this is what I was saying to Mark when he was cutting me off saying it's all pay to play is that you get this, I think a better organic reach from the reels, even compared to TikTok, because TikTok, I don't think understands the content as well. For some reason, I, I just feel, I, I don't know if it's because of the you know, it's Chinese or, or whatever, mm -hmm. but when you have substantive content, um, it, it tends to, in my opinion, do better, uh, on the reels where, like you said, TikTok is kind of like, if it's not super fun, then it's not going to, or, or who knows, like there's spiritual TikTok, there's conspiracy TikTok, there's, you know, there's all the different political sure. TikTok and all that. But, um, but I feel like substantive content does better on reels. Yeah. And, um, I, I tell people all the time, and I actually had, did an Instagram live today, uh, which I used to do so much more often, but I stopped doing just because I got so busy. Um, but the, the the genius thing about the Instagram reels is that, that the platform was already there. You just have to like take it on and mimic it. You don't, you don't have to create the wheel at all. Hmm. Like if you just go to the reels, you'll see what other people have done. You just mimic that in your own way, put your own twist on it, put it out there. It's incredibly simple and intuitive. And it just, uh, it just allows for you to just showcase your, your work, your wares, your mission, your product yourself, and just have some fun doing it. And uh, I did, I did one. It's funny. I did one last week. It was, um, it was, it was really, a, it, it took me five minutes. Now these reels, they can be incredibly time consuming at first. They can be, yeah. They, yeah, yeah. They, like, yeah I, there are wheels that I've done. that have taken me hours yeah, yeah. to do. And then, but there was one I did last week. It, it literally took me 10 minutes tops, which yeah. was like nothing. And I got maybe, it seemed like a dud. I got, um, two, like, like in a week, I got maybe two, 300 views and then some algorithm kicked in yeah, and something, something happened. Works. And that same one that only got 2000 views, I think is right now at about 3,500. I've got over 1500 followers just in 24 hours, which at that point I was only averaging maybe like 20 followers a day. I got 1500 and from this real end, it's, it's not even a great one. And so I'm not even sure how that works exactly, yeah. but it shows that, that, you know, and, and that, by the way, those 1500 new followers translated to about five, just in one day, about $500 in revenue. 
So, you know, like to, from, from my, um, for my website sales. And I don't even know what I've done for my, for my Amazon sales yet. So let's talk about putting it out there because in order to, it's experimentation, yep. you know, social media now, because it's, it's not about creating the perfect piece of content. If you take the time to create the perfect piece of content, okay. Even if it's a great piece of content, it's one piece of content yeah. and that doesn't really work over time. So it's about, in my opinion, consistency. What you cannot be more correct, right? Yeah. So, and some of that means you have to be vulnerable. Yes, you know because you can't be perfect. You have to keep rolling it out there. And so let's talk about the mindset that allows someone who is creating a brand, is a brand, trying to uh, sharpen the brand, or just getting into this. You know, wh- where does your mindset need to be to? to deliver. Well, you couldn't be more right about the consistency part. I think that's the secret sauce to being successful on Instagram, which obviously translates to being successful in your business. Because for those who are not listening, if you do not have a relevant, strong social media brand, you are doing yourself a huge disservice. And you're also doing your your community and your market a huge disservice because it is it is the most viable, important, it is the wheel. It is fire. It is, it is, it is social media is the most relevant tool since the wheel. I don't even, I really don't think that it's hyperbole. I really think that it is that it is that important to the culture of who we are. Um, but the mindset of being able to be relevant on it, it takes a tremendous amount of, of confidence, of security, of vulnerability, of self-awareness and, and, and courage and, and the, the courage to be vulnerable, the courage to be silly and aloof, the courage to put yourself out there and, 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 and take hits for, you know, uh, be, being critiqued about what you're doing, how you're doing it, what you're wearing, what you said. And, and so it does take a tremendous amount of, of courage to be, to be able to do it. It is not for the weak, which is why so many people don't do it. They often think that, you know, I, I, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to do it. And I, 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 I've seen people drink glasses of water, you know, like get 1500 <laughs> views, you know, like it, it's, it's, it, 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 it's the, the, the content is really just more about character. It's just about who you are and what it is that you do. I mean, we could, you're doing a magnificent job of creating these reels yourself, like the one that you sent me earlier. Sure. Um, and, and just the, the concept of just standing there talking and, and it's, it's, it's so prominent in, in this culture where anything, you know, don't, don't overthink it. Try, try to just have fun. Sometimes just talking about what you had for lunch and, 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 um, and, and how that, that meal, how, what it meant to you. Cause maybe you got it from Dottie's or the marketplace cafe and, and the way that it was served or the texture of, of, you know, or the engagement between you and the, and the barista or what, like all those things really matter. And it, and if you use, use it right with the hashtag barista and hashtag Dottie's, then you start to build a, a, a community and a fraternity around that coffee that you had or that sandwich that you had. And, 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 you know, like like the guy who did the, I don't know his name, the guy that did the, the ocean spray yeah, 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 uh, yeah, yeah. with the Fleetwood Mac song in the back. I mean, that guy oh, is a glow. He, he, he created the biggest marketing campaign that ocean spray, a multi-million dollar organization has ever done has, has ever. And all he did was get on a skateboard, put on some Fleetwood Mac and drink some, a bottle of ocean spray for 10, 15 <laughs> seconds. 
He's a multimillionaire now, like, like, and, and, the, and the biggest campaign that, that, and I guarantee you that Ocean Spray has probably spent t- hundreds of millions of dollars on, on marketing and advertising and some, some, some bozo on a skateboard. Is, is ended up being the spokesperson for them. And, and, and that's the relevance of social media. And it, and it is, like you said, about, about consistency and just, and just being vulnerable. And that vulnerability means you have to get over the fear. And if yeah. you listen to someone like, you know, Gary V, I'm sure you listen to Gary that's v my dude okay, every so, morning. So he's like, stop giving uh you know what about what everybody thinks or 100%. what anybody thinks um not everybody or anybody at all like i don't care if it's your parents your 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 close friends you know just put it all aside because at the end of the day it's about the self-awareness you have to know who you are 100 and yeah. that is what can open the door. Yeah, you know, not everyone's going to go viral every time or whatever. But if you specifically, if you have a business, you know, and I and I look at this and I look at local business owners, and the first thing that I do if they're asking me to look at their marketing is I look at their Instagram, mm. and because you can see, because you'll see a combination of you know creativity or lack thereof or what have you, Absolutely. right, right immediately. Um, and you know, and and it is you're just so just leaving money on the table. One hundred percent. If more. if you don't build uh, that that content, I, I firmly believe that the biggest obstacle that businesses have it's not the market, it's 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 not um, uh, it, it's uh, not their product. It's 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 themselves. It's them. It's 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 not being courageous enough to, to be vulnerable and kind of put themselves out there and grow and and um, and I, I think the, the biggest obstacle that people have to the growth and development of their of their business, of their mission, of what, whatever it is, is themselves, and just being self aware of of what it is that they can and can't do. And you know, I, I say I, I I won't say who it is, but you know, I, I there's this um, as a chef. Well, I'll just say it, my son. So so my son, <laughs> who is um, is a phenomenal chef. I I, I would argue that he was at, at 22 years old is one of the, one of the top 100 best young chefs in the country. I would, I would 100% bet my money on that, but he hates being on social media. So I'm not sure he's my child. I got to make sure that I'm gonna, <laughs> I need a DNA test, but uh, he hates being on social media. He doesn't want to be shown at all. And, uh, but he wants to be relevant on social media. And I said, and I, so I tell him, you know, it's fine. You, you don't have to show your face. You don't yeah. have to be the star. I'm, I'm already seeing the videos in my head yeah. that he should be doing. And, yeah. you, and you see 100%. it too. And you see it too. He's handsome. He's charismatic. He's, he's, he's the poster child for exactly what social media is and how to be successful at it, except he wants no part of it. Right. So I said, if you want to be successful in this field, you don't have to be the star, but something has to be the star. Right. So make the food the star. Make the process the star. Make the experience of how you shop for the ingredients the star. Make the experience of how you dine the star. Make something else the star. You don't have to be the star, but if you want to be relevant on social media, something has to be the star. So maybe if, let's say hypothetically the Steve Valentes of the world, and I'm no disrespect my friend Steve Valente because he has actually has a really decent uh, social media following. But if you personally don't want to be the face then you make the suits the face. Maybe you make the environment that you're taking your suit to the, the, the space, whether it's a ball or a gala or something like that. Or, you know, maybe you make the actual tailoring experience. Yeah. The, the, so so if I'm you thinking, don't want to yeah. personally make yourself 
the the star then you know if you're the marketplace cafe and you and and sean doesn't want to get up there and promote it that's fine make the sandwich the star make the way that you shop for your ingredients the star make the experience of the customers the star make the decor that you have the star but make something the star yeah because if not you're going to do yourself a huge disservice yeah because it's it's just free reach and we spend a lot of money on advertising um, we, i mean you maybe not you and me but like uh but businesses do um they spend a ton on radio yep. they spend especially in this market um they spend a ton maybe on newspaper and and digital yep. ads and that sort of thing and this is a way to get that organic reach that yep. you're talking about that i mean you know there's not anyone in this community or a lot of people in uh, your industry who don't know who you are and you're not spending a lot of money on marketing. I'm not spending nothing on marketing. It is time consuming. <laughs> I will say that, which of course time is money, yeah. but I, I don't, I don't have the fear. And I think you utilize that word properly is that it's fear-based that what most people don't get on social media because they're afraid of being vulnerable or being silly or just not knowing how to use it. And, and uh, I, I'm, I'm proof positive that you, you not only can use it, but you can use it so much to your advantage and have fun doing it. You said you have a son. Yes, you're, got three kiddos. You're a dad uh, a with dad. with three. My daughter has a uh, goes to Siena College on a full scholarship. I might add. Nice, uh, very very nice. Uh, my son is a chef at Crust Restaurant, which he loves tremendously. He's the executive chef there. My my daughter moved to Connecticut, and she's the sales manager at a Nissan dealership. Which she graduated from Central Connecticut State with a degree in sports medicine, and then COVID kicked in, so she decided to stay home and uh, or stay near home and just you know work a job until things kind of let up and then she was going to go over to atlanta to practice uh her sports medicine ship but um so now but she started working as a car uh salesperson and it within a year it became sales manager so you know <laughs> uh, you know like man the jacksons know how to win we 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 we, we, we don't play around and do pretty well in sales too and do it pretty well so um, she might have got that from her <laughs> as far as that goes that's tremendous that's tremendous so they're all kind of nearby yeah they're all we're all close we all see each other on a daily if not regular basis but they're also young people doing their own thing you know traveling and having fun and you know exploring and doing exactly what it is they're supposed to do with young people and i was seeing some videos you were in some tropical-ish place uh, i was in recently. puerto rico maybe about puerto three rico. weeks ago yeah oh, man yeah. and yeah. uh you look like you're having a good time my friend your life, life is good life you got, is amazing. you got this wonderful woman too i mean I don't she's know if you are, yeah. uh no i don't want to talk too much about <laughs> okay, that. okay. Uh, but um <laughs> just go to just go to his page so you can... uh, yeah just go to my page and you'll you'll you'll, you'll see all you need to know she, she is amazing though she's um yeah, but I'm not gonna talk too much about that. She, <laughs> she, she doesn't like me talking too much about her, uh, but I but I do it anyway. But no, I'm listen. I I I'm so grateful to have such a great sense of purpose. You know, uh, Mark Twain once said the two most important days of your life are the day you were born and the day you find out why. And once I became an author, I knew why I was here. You know, it was like that the gray hair moment of like I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And only two weeks later, the universe kind of just threw me a softball and said, you know. There are no children's books featuring for about financial literacy, and 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 I, was, and I somehow or another mustered the courage to be able to like figure out maybe I could do it. And you know that book has sold over a hundred thousand copies up to this point, and uh, I am, and people often ask me like, did you see this level of success coming? And I said one hundred percent. 
I said, I, you know, if, if you open up a pizza restaurant, you expect it to become Domino's. If you open up a deli, you expect it to become Subway. I don't think anybody dreams small when they, when they start something they know can be big. And I, I knew that this was important and more importantly, or just as importantly, I should say, I knew that I could do this. I, 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 I've never put limits on myself. And again, I think that's attributed to growing up resilient in the Bronx with a teenage mom who, who was such a hustler in her own right to raise her two boys as best as she could. And um, I think it's that sense of role modelship from her, along with the, the, the culture of strength and unity as a kid growing up in the Bronx and the hip hop era. And, um, and just having a mom who makes sure that she geared me in the right direction to love myself, believe in myself. And, and then when I found this sense of purpose, I, I just took all of that that I knew and just poured it all into my heart and, and made sure that my why of what I do is so much more greater than my what. And it's, it's, it's all of those things um, including thinking about that little boy who said that his life is completely changed because of something that I did that gives me, that makes me honestly, I think I'm the most successful children's book author in the country, maybe even in the world, not so much because I've sold a million copies and, you know, and, but because I just, I love what I do on the, on the, on the grandest of levels, because I know what I do is of impact. It's of service. And, um, and, it, and it gives me what I think we all need. And that's a sense of purpose. And there's a couple pieces to the, the leap, the leap to go from what is safe and yeah. what is um, you know, a little bit more comfortable in the sense that you have a paycheck uh, coming in from a corporate entity, you know, uh, allied waste in, in, in your case, to then, you know, doing this thing and then taking the big leap to say, okay, I'm walking away from this to then do that, yeah. which is scary, Ter which terrifying. is, you know, the, the old saying of burning the ships in the harbor, walking ashore, you know, there's no going back, that sort of thing. Um, but tell me about that, how, how that happened for you, that that like moment and when you made that decision and, and what that was like. So it's funny that you utilize the ship and harbor thing, because it was as I was writing Danny Dollar and really starting to pitch it and see if I could get someone to publish it for me, I started to question myself, like, what am I doing here? Like, I have no clue. I've never been to college, even though I just received a, a doctorate from MCLA. Congratulations. Thank you so much for that. So you can call me Dr. Jackson if you want. Okay. I'm kidding. <laughs> um, first of all, thank you, uh, President Burge and the staff at MCLA. Like, I'm honored by that in ways more that I cannot, can't express. But um, when, I, when I got to that pivotal, pivotal moment where I was writing this book and I'm like, maybe I could do this. I did question myself, you know, because it's a field that I have no idea. Like, you know, I, I don't know. How do I sell these things? How do I, how do I make the world know about this product? And, you know, how do I market? I, I, is it even good? Like, I, I, I don't know. And then I came across this quote and this quote changed everything for me. And it was by industrialist John Shedd. And I actually tattooed it on my arm. Hmm. And the, the quote is, a ship is safe in harbor but that's not what ships are for. Mm. And when I read that, it changed everything for mm. me um, because I'm not here to play it safe. I'm not here to stay in Harvard. I'm not here to stay in port. I'm here to seek adventure. I'm here to take great risk. I'm here to explore and to try to discover the greatest versions of myself. And there's no way in the world that you can do that staying in Harbor and playing it safe. So it was then that I knew that I was going to do this and I was going to do it pretty damn well. And I'm very, very fortunate that I found the courage to be able to use the strengths that I have of 
engagement, of marketing, of talking to people, of sales, and, and use that to my advantage. And I double down on all of those things. And, you know, I outsource the things that I can't do. And I double down on the things that I can do. And, and that serves, have served me up to this point incredibly well. From a self-care, um, spiritual um, realm, what, what is your process like? Um, you do meditate, um, you know, what, what, what is that like? for you. I mean, again, this is, you know, you're not the person who goes up to work every day at 8 a.m. to an office. And, you know, so you, you, before it was cool before COVID hit, um, you were, you know, yeah. doing your own thing, you know, yeah. like, you know, like a lot of small business owners. Um, but you know, what, what is that like for you? This, this sort of your, your process, you know, my, my, I, I will give you what is my motivator and it might surprise you. Um, it's fear. Hmm. It's it, fear is my greatest motivator, except it's not fear in the traditional sense. I'm not fearful of making the phone call. I'm not fear of knocking on the door. I'm not fearful of, of being rejected. I'm fearful of not succeeding. I'm fearful of what happens if I don't make the call. What happens if I don't ask the CEO to take this book? What happens if I don't knock on that Disney producer's door? That's what I'm fearful of. I'm fearful of what Les Brown says is that the richest place in the world is the graveyard because that's where dreams and aspirations go to die. And I'm not going to be that. I, I, I want to leave this earth dirty. I want to leave this earth exhausted. I want to be able to do everything and any, everything, anything and everything it is to become successful. And you can't do that fear-based. So I'm not afraid to, to ask the pretty girl to dance. I'm not afraid to knock on, uh, reach out to a, a, a director of a Disney movie and say, hey, can you do this? Which currently right now, Lynn Sutherland, who is the director of Mulan 2, the only black female director of a major Disney film, the project she's working on now is Danny Dollar. No kidding. No kidding. Congratulations. Thank you. That. That's pretty amazing. It is pretty amazing. We're still in the <laughs> pitching stages. Sure. But, um, well, but that's the project that she's, that far that she's working on right now. So, so when you ask me, like, do I meditate or, you know, what is my process? I think my process, honestly, is just knowing that with inside of me, I have the courage and the ability to do whatever it is that I choose to do. I, f I firmly believe that, that I am without question, the most powerful force in the universe. Like when, when I, when I, when I look up at the sky and I see the moon, I'm like, we walked on that. When I look at the cell phone or a car or a rock or anything of, of, of quality and substance, I'm like, I'm like, someone did that. Someone's hands built this device, this, these microphones that we're talking into the structure that we're living in. Like, and if, if we can do that, I could sell books. Yeah. Like, you know, like, like, like if, if we can create a device and, and, and this camera, like, I, and just break it down in simplicity, if we can create instruments like microphones and things that literally change the dynamics of how we live, work, breathe, love then the idea of me selling a bunch of books doesn't sound so crazy. You know what I mean? So, so I, I, there's a sense of fearlessness that I'm so fortunate to have. And again, I attribute it to being a kid from the Bronx that allows me to believe that I can do absolutely positively anything. And especially if I use my own, you know, strengths and abilities to make it happen. I like to tout myself that if Tony Robbins, Dr. Seuss and Kevin Hart had a love child, it would be me, <laughs> you know? And, and so, you know, I, 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 I build my, I build my own path that way. And so far it's, it's led me on some amazing trips around the world, talking to children of all ages, selling 
countless books and and now even have the opportunity to have it turned into either a feature film or a series and you know that again comes without a college degree or you know a sense of higher learning but instead it comes with the the ability to believe in myself to have the courage to to and the fearlessness to be able to know that i can do absolutely positively anything i put my heart and soul into and so far so good it seems as though that evolution is taking place where it's kind of like your uh, calling card was originally the um, financial aspect uh, sure. the 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 financial literacy the actual literacy as well yep. reading, reading literacy yep um that, that seems to be evolving you know because i think uh while those are super important and reader else is is true and and that's incredibly important um it seems as though that you're getting broader in your in your message in your in your branding you know not to not to isolate it to a, a marketing aspect that's that's not my intention but you know but what direction do you see yourself headed um in regard to your content um and and you know what what you what you are to the world well i love being an author it, it's so meaningful to me especially since i didn't know i had this gift inside of me of being a storyteller um my books are the vehicle to get and inspire children and really inspire children of all ages to find and become greater versions of themselves. That's kind of my purpose in life. And I use my books as the vessel and the vehicle to get in front of them, to be able to, to speak to them about becoming greater versions of themselves. And so like for me, uh, I, I just did an amazing speaking event uh, for the city of Jacksonville two months ago. It was actually at Jaguar Stadium where I spoke to uh, community leaders, constituents, and um, inside Jacksonville Stadium, which totally blew my mind. Um, and, um, and that, that opportunity to be able to speak to people, you know, really important people about illiteracy and how it impacts every single one of us, regardless of age, gender, uh, economic background, it, it, it impacts us all and to, to educate them about, you know, why this matters to you directly, uh, is, is, is kind of my overall, one of my overall purposes. And it's also because of that now that I'm actually working with the city of Jacksonville again throughout the summer to, to help um, help increase the literacy rates of, of, the, of the children in our community there. They're really focusing on illiteracy and, and, and early reading. And they just bought 10,000 copies of, of one of my books and, um, and are and using me as, a, as, as the catalyst for inspiring kids to, to read and become again, the best versions of themselves. So, you know, while I, I'm really excited to create these books and, and, and these platforms that hopefully become movies and series and lunch boxes and stuff like that, <laughs> I think ultimately my goal um is is to just to be able to make the world a better place i know it sounds you know very cliche but i think that every child that puts a book in their hand actually kind of has a tool to make the world just to, to make them just a little bit better which in turn makes the world just a little bit better um i also like to say superficially one of my goals in life was to have a building named after me. And <laughs> while that sounds completely superficial and I just want to bring joy to the world. I want and I want to and a building. And I just want to build it. Because <laughs> I now it. now I, I say that sort of tongue in cheek because most people who have a building named after them never see that building. Mm. They they're they're dead and gone long right. after that building is named. And I'm content with that. I'm content with the Ty Allen Jackson wing air whatever <laughs> building whatever. <laughs> But then, you know, a few years ago, I was 
suggested by Alex at the Berkshire Anthenaeum to have a mural, you know, of my book when I close my eyes represent the children's library. And, um, and, you know, a, a couple of years ago that, that, that mural was revealed and in the corner on the left is my name. I got to see my name on a building. And so like, you know, that, that, that sense, and it's not the superficiality of it. It just means while I was here, I stood for something. It means while I was here, I actually made a difference. And so, um, so I'm, I'm, I'm proud that I actually got to see my name on a building. That is cool. That, that is, is cool. cool. Maybe we can get a full building one day. Yeah, no, yeah, we'll see. That's okay. I'm, I'm content with that. That, that yeah. That's good enough. We, can, we can work on that. We can work we can on work that. On yeah. That. The Ty Jackson yeah. School of <laughs> being a knucklehead. Yeah. Well, some, I mean, have it somewhere in Pittsfield. You know, yeah. I uh, can do that. Yeah. Uh, real quickly, Pittsfield, you know, your, your thoughts um, on this city. Uh, I see you downtown all the time. Uh, you know, you're always full of energy. Thank you, you know, and uh, I'm always joking after that. I'm always introducing you to my girlfriend again. Say, hey, have you ever met Carl? Yeah, that's so funny. Like literally like two he's dozen like, times in a row. He's like, stop being joke. an idiot. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but downtown, it you know, um, it has its, its ebbs and flows and ups and downs. But um, but there's a lot of great characters uh, downtown. And uh, uh, just it, it, to me, it's a happy place. I, I don't know if it's that way for everybody. But I love going downtown. I, I think it's essential for us to have a sense of pride with with where we are. I think it's that level of pride that not only makes us, you know, proud citizens, but also allows us to take care of of this place. You know, when you when you own your home, you tend to take better care of it than if you rented your home. And so this is our home. So and and we need to do a better job of of taking care of it. And um, I, I think it's a magical place, uh, and and I'm proof positive of that. I, I I think the success that I've had is predicated upon me being a resident of the city of Pittsfield and Berkshire hmm. County. I don't think what happens to me, what's happened to me, happens in 99% of the places in this country. This is a place where what you do makes a difference, and I am the physical manifestation of that. Um, the the relationships that I built. Uh, the the networking and the, the 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 way that my books have been received. My book is about to be adapted into a musical from mm -hmm. Barrington Stage. My previous book, Danny Dollar, was turned into a play with over forty performances by the Berkshire Theater Group. That's not happening in the Bronx. My book was featured in the Berkshire Eagle countless times. Um, I, I it, it's my I've I've worked with the city of Pittsfield and the poor and the educational school system and have been in each school probably a dozen times with every year my books permeating throughout all of them probably every child in this city has had my book in their hand at some point and that's been the catalyst for me able to go to places like Jacksonville and like that that all has happened here and by a guy who by the way kind of doesn't even know what he's doing but you know but because this city has embraced me because this city has seen the the, the value in what it is that I do, that it's it's taken me in and made me their their son. And I'm so grateful for that. And I want the citizens to see that. I, I want people to see what you do here matters. And if you're able to, to give to this city, this city will give back to you 110 fold. But you've you've got to you've got to show it the love that it deserves. And if you do, I, you know, I've seen it with my own eyes. I've experienced it with my own heart that it, it will, it will do so much more for you than you will do for it. You get what you give. You get what you give. You know, I, 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 I do, I do believe that. Yeah. Um, you know, I think there's a golden rule out there that's kind of along those lines and, and so forth. I just, you know, and, um, and I think that's, that all sums it up and um, you know, you're putting it out there. 
you know, you're showing the love, uh, putting the love out there. Um, and uh, I think it comes back. I'm giving what I'm back. getting. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. So Tyler Jack, did we miss anything? Uh no. <laughs> you know what we missed? <laughs> what did we miss, man? We missed you. <laughs> we missed you. I've uh I've you've interviewed me more than any other person. Um, and you've always bring great insight and perspective. Um, I think you're one of the unsung heroes of this of this city. You're 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 a good man and a good father and and you always have a smile on your face. And so kudos to you, my friend, for this platform, for the opportunity to be able to, to blab on for the past hour or some change, uh, for bringing other people to light and uh, and showcasing what it is that they do. So, uh, so yeah, what we've missed is acknowledging you, my friend. Oh, Ty, thanks. <laughs> thanks a lot, my man. You got it, brother. Thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to the John Kroll Podcast on your platform of choice. Maybe it's Apple Podcasts or Spotify, whatever works for you. Also, I would like to hear from you on the people and the stories that you'd like to hear more of. Send me a note through Facebook Messenger, Instagram, LinkedIn. I'm easy to find and I'm easy to reach. I look forward to hearing from you. And if you'd like to support the podcast for less than a cup of coffee, and I'm not talking about the cost of a large latte at a fancy coffee shop, no, more like a McDonald's coffee, go into the description of this episode and scroll down to the anchor.fm link. It's right there. Just click it and you can see your options or log on to anchor.fm backslash John hyphen Kroll backslash support. Again, thank you for listening. I'm John Kroll. Talk to you soon. Thank you.